electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, Carl, thank you very much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, the state of stocks, China weakness. That's a play today. The rise in yields here, all weighing on sentiment. The investment committee debating now the road ahead for your money. Joining me for the hour, Josh Brown, Steph Link, and Joe Terranova. Check the markets. We're red across the board today, and we do have a number of issues that we are contending with. Yields have been rising, as you know. Uh, there's China weakness today. We're asking Josh how much that matters. Why don't you put it all together and, and give us your view uh, as the markets, you know, a couple weeks uh, in a row now been a little rocky. And where you think we may be going from here? Yeah, uh, if, if we finish this week the way we've started it, it'll be the third week in a row where we've given a lot more ground back than we've gained. It makes sense to me. You look at the run-up that we had uh, from, let's call it, April directly into earnings season, and then the reaction basically being sell the news. Like, I'm, I'm okay with that outcome. I don't think stocks should rally 20%, then report the earnings that everyone was excited about, and then rally another 10%. I, to me... It's unnecessary. Um, so this is, I think it's, I think it's fine. If you look at uh, August generally, and then even August based on the presidential cycle in the third year, which is where we are in 2023, this is all very standard. Um, this, this, this kind of, uh, this kind of action. So that's where I am on it. As far as the China stuff, China's been a, an economy in slowdown for most of the last 10 years. They've effectively had a lost decade in their, in their stock market. And I know they're doing some new stimulus stuff. It doesn't seem to be enough. People aren't that excited about it. The reopening was underwhelming. I was never investing in anything based on, like, a blockbuster Chinese economy. So I'm definitely not going to sell on that either. You know, Steph, um, it used to be when China sort of sniffles, everybody else gets a cold. Now, they've been sniffling a lot lately, right? The, yeah. the reopen's been a sputter at best, and the markets, for the most part, brushed it off. Now, not so much, right? Now they unexpectedly cut rates. The slowdown appears real. How much does it matter? Well, it, it does matter, um, but I think the good news is that they are stimulating or they're trying to. It's just a little bit less than what we thought, but it's kind of like slowly trickling every week or so, some sort of measure. So they are, they are seeing the slowdown, right? But I don't think the entire economy is slow because I, I listen to companies on the consumer facing side and Estee Lauder is going to be really interesting because they have 30 percent of their, I did. I did. Um, not a great sale, but it'll be interesting to hear because they have 30 percent of their exposure in China. Right. Mm. But we did hear good things from Nike. They had a 48 percent same store sales number. Excuse me. Um, Starbucks at a 48 percent same store sales number. We had Nike actually had 19 percent in-store growth. Um, we've had Las Vegas Sands and Macau, both from Wynn and Las Vegas Sands. Numbers are good. Right. So 
there are pockets of China that I would be investing in. Those that's, and I'm looking at the U.S. facing companies yeah. into into China. On the again on the reopening side, so but on the talk, other side, you're not talking about the group of stocks that I want to talk about though, as it relates to China, and the macro industrials, well, which that's not entirely, you have a reasonably significant exposure to. And have been looking, I think, to add more exposure in that area. I think there are two pockets of industrials that are seeing a lot of momentum. Aerospace, aviation, Boeing and GE are, are two, right, that I do own. Mm-hmm. And then it's reshoring, right? And, and that's Ingersoll Rand and Parker Hannafin. Um, it's not so much Caterpillar. It's not, not so much deer. They've had nice runs for sure, but they do have more exposure in China. So I, I have a different way of looking at the industrial side. Um, I do have 3M that has some exposure as well. But there, there are stories out there in, in industrial land. They're not based on China. But again, I'm, look, I think that China is important to watch. It's slow, fine. At the, and the, at the same time, the U.S. economy is really doing well. We were just talking before the show opened. The Atlanta Fed GDP now for this current quarter in the U.S., is at five percent. It wasn't supposed to happen like that, well, right? Well, it's doing Everyone well thought, because it's a, you know, obviously a consumption-based economy, and two-thirds of it are relative to the consumer. Right. And you know, I've been talking about being positive and upbeat about the consumer sure, because of with, jobs with and good, wages. Sure, with good reason. But, but I think. On the manufacturing side, we are bottoming, Scott, I do. I think the PMIs are bottoming. Even the Empire Fed number today, which I know headline was ugly, but the forward-looking indicators were actually quite strong. So I think you are bottoming. And again, we go back to onshore, reshore, whatever. That's a big theme, and that's a big part of why I think we have held in in terms of the momentum. And why is that so important? Well, we just passed $3 trillion of stimulus to to rebuild America. And that's very powerful. And so despite the fact that we've seen higher interest rates, the, it's this other side that's kind of offsetting it. And it's really pretty, it's pretty encouraging. By the way, the one thing I thought last week, which we were away, uh, is most important, unit labor costs actually fell and yet productivity went higher. That is actually bullish for GDP as well. And then retail sales, I know we're gonna talk about it, but the control group today being much better than expected, that too is a function of a better GDP. And you put it all together, and that's why we got a 5% number today. You're showing the yield curve uh, picture there too as we're cycling through some of the movers um, today, right? The 10-year hits its highest level today since October. So you gotta contend with rising yields. You gotta contend with China weakness, and the market's Mm -hmm. trying to figure out how it wants to deal with that. And then on the issue of valuations, right? Whether valuations are rich, whether they're too rich, and even the pullback in tech as to whether they're too rich still, even with a two-week pullback there. So you put all that together, you shake it up, and you spill it out on the table, and what do you got? First of all, you have seasonality. Josh highlighted the seasonality. Seasonality is incredibly important. Secondarily, you have real yields, which are now at a 10-year high. So you're back to that we have competition for equities once again. As it relates to well, China, once again, we haven't gone away from it. We've had no. For, there was a period. There was several months where you kind of moved away from that. You had a, a degree of comfort that that wasn't the narrative. Well, only because only because sentiment had such a, a dramatic shift. Uh, and by the way, on that, before you finish, right now for the Bank of America Fund Manager Survey, least bearish Fund Manager Survey since February of 22. That shows you how much things have changed. And by the way, also from their flow show, you're still getting big inflows into stocks as this sentiment has turned and people are chasing, right? Because you've, you've had this five-month winning streak 
And now you don't have that many months left in the year. Okay, but let's put some context to it. Let's put it in perspective and let's understand. I want to go back to the seasonality. This isn't unexpected what we're experiencing in the market. And quite candidly, I think it's healthy because I think you do come out on the other side of this and realize this was not an inflection point for the market. To Stephanie's point, we are seeing an improvement in economic conditions. You talked about China. China is not our economic equivalent. I think we have to get past the point where we continue to believe that that, in fact, is the case. Wait, so you're telling me that it doesn't matter? It doesn't matter, and it doesn't matter in terms of emerging market investing. Emerging market investing this year, four of the last six weeks, we're seeing dramatic inflows into the emerging markets with China in an overwhelmingly deflationary environment. India just reached an all-time high. All right, so copper is, you know, <clears throat> taking it on the chin, to say the least, right? Mm-hmm. It's on the mat, okay? They're going to count it out. Okay. You're going to buy FCX. So now? the deflation. I actually, be- I actually own. I actually own FCX. Okay, via the Jote. Um, Are you happy about that? The deflationary forces. Um, am I happy about it? No. It's part of. It's part of an overall portfolio. I own it equally weighted. But to your, I'll give you the point on that. But when you look at the deflationary impact of China, what matters most is Europe because that's the largest trading partner. And then that deflationary force ultimately comes here to the United States. And that actually helps overall bringing down yields, improving the inflation environment, and back to valuations. Okay, you know, we keep having this debate. We started it yesterday on whether valuations matter or not. If you are a growth investor, you have to accept higher valuations. That's just a fact. If you are a value investor, you're going to accept a lower valuation. Take, for example, Citigroup. Over the last 10 years, Citigroup has a very appealing valuation. Mm -hmm. Where's the stock gone? The stock is basically nowhere. The only return you have is on buybacks and dividends. My pushback to you would be, of course, you have to accept a higher valuation. You're already paying a higher valuation for a lot of those names. The question is, what degree of higher valuation are you willing to accept and pay? Well, Yes, you're already paying a a well above market multiple for a lot of the mega cap tech names. But does that mean that you need to pay an extraordinarily higher market multiple for those names? And that that's back to positioning. That's where you if you believe that and will utilize Apple, which is statistically at the upper end of its 10 year average on valuation. How do you own Apple? Do you own Apple market cap weighted? Do you own Apple equal weighted? Are you underweight Apple? It's it's about positioning. But I don't think you use valuation as the absolute guide whether you want to own something or not own something. I think sentiment is more important. I think positioning is more important. I think the dynamics of what the economy is is more important. If you think about the last 15 years, I would make the argument that the overall market has trended higher with valuations being above their historical average. And that's because we're recreating the economy into something that's more technologically growth oriented. Here's my point, I guess, Josh, is do you want to write in the here and now, as we've talked about the market broadening out more, where it's not all reliant on mega cap tech, some of these other sectors like industrials have done well. Do you want to bet on those areas continuing to do well when we're now more worried than we were before about what's happening in China? And the fact that the manufacturing economy here in the U.S. is still sluggish. Now, Steph may be right. It might be bottoming, but bottoming doesn't mean good. Bottoming just means the worst is maybe over, but it's still not great. I think what the Home Depot CEO uh, said on the call really captures 
what's happening in the economy at large right now. He's talking about this hesitance on the part of consumers to pursue big ticket uh, items for one for for one reason, if they have to borrow, the costs are higher, and for another reason, they already bought all that stuff in 2021, and yet they still somehow managed to out earn expectations, and they reiterated full year guidance, uh, and they have the wherewithal to buy back 15 billion dollars more worth of stock. That's the stock market in a nutshell. Um, you're not getting the same top line growth, and in fact, Home Depot's revenue is down year over year. But so what? You're going to make more money now because your costs have gone down. They said supply chain issues amongst their vendors are a thing of the past. So that kind of explains where we are today. I don't think most stocks that we're talking about require really crazy top line growth to work. In this environment, all they need is for the supply chain shocks and the labor shocks to gradually fade away. That gives them the ability to report upside earnings, which is pretty much what everyone important was able to do this quarter. Guess what? They could do it again next quarter uh, and they can guide higher for, for 2024. And if you do get if you do get any kind of stability reacceleration on the top line, that's not priced in. That's like that's even better. So what are the stocks that typify that? I think Alphabet. Look at the 13F filings. All the big hedge funds are adding to it or buying it. Um, this is not an egregious valuation. It's a company that if the economy grows, it's going to get that benefit. But while it waits, uh, it, can, it can bring down costs. It's got lots of levers. There are so many stories like that. So that's the large cap. On, on the, the value stocks or the smaller stocks, I really think energy is where the puck is going next. You think about uh, just my names in the IEO as an example. Um, 87% of the IEO stocks are above their 200-day moving average. Crude oil is down 3% today, down to $80 a barrel. The last time uh, it, was, it was at in, this, you know, in these levels, November of 2022, when crude was $85 a barrel, um, you had much higher prices for all of these energy names, all of the IEO names, all of the large integrated. So I think that those are among the cheapest stocks. They have the highest prospect for earnings growth in 2024. They've already been sold off on the profit shortfalls of this year. That part is over. And now they're rallying on not so great news. So, like, there's tons of stuff you can do. You don't have to worry about, you know, what's going to happen in China next month or whatever. But by the way, Chinese stimulus, this is what they did. They went from the, the medium-term lending, they went from 2.65 to 2.5. That's what they did in terms of a It's nothing. It's a non-event. What about NVIDIA? Let me just hit you on that real quick uh, before I move on, because it's our chart of the day. The bounce continues, right? The bounce back. Today, you get price target increases from at least three firms. Baird goes to 570, Josh, UBS to 540. So you're looking at 30 and 23 percent respectively on both of those calls, a reiteration of, of uh, overweight and then a reiteration of a buy. How do we view this year? Uh, the P.E., by the way, as we mentioned yesterday, has now come into 48.4. I know come in. You're, you're like, well, it's still 48.4. Yeah, but it was 62 and a half in May. So as you had, yeah, well, I think, a, what? It's a classic, a val it's a classic you, value stock now. Yeah. You, you <laughs> took your position down by, I think, a third, if I, if I recall correctly no, or so. I sold, I, sold, I sold 25%, but that's 
owning it for 2,500 percentage points no, of, of return. So it's of not. Course. All right, so you took it down. Not, by it's a not, I'm not bearish. Yeah, I'm not, I bearish. not bearish. I just I've taken I've taken my initial investment out twice, so it's it's fine. Um, Nvidia is interesting. There is no way. I mean, I, I'm saying no way. Watch, it'll happen. My opinion. There's no way they can repeat what they did in May. Come out and say, oh, actually, earnings are going to be like 50% higher than expectation. I mean, I guess like, I guess thing, it could happen. Like it's in the scheme of possibility. It, to me, it's a very remote chance. So they're not going to repeat that. But you can't get these chips. Like everyone all over the world is trying to make sure that their data center is stocked with as many uh, of NVIDIA's GPUs as possible, and this entire architecture is being built on top of their uh, proprietary software platform. That didn't change during the course of this quarter, so maybe it'll be good enough on the sell side to just hear a reiteration of that demand going out, going out years uh, quite frankly. So I think that that's what we're going to hear. Mm -hmm. um, and and when you look at the data center reports that we got from Amazon, from Alphabet, from Microsoft, it's not it's not uh, blow the roof off growth for the cloud, but within the cloud, more and more upgrades to GPU architecture from CPU are inevitable. And that's what the stock is trading on. So I'm, I'm in it for better or for worse. Expect volatility one way or the other is probably the best like prediction of the future I can give you. You mentioned the, the visibility that you think they have, which was the genesis for the Morgan Stanley call yesterday, which really initiated this whole um, bounce back in the stock. It was up like 8% yesterday or so. Maybe it settled a little bit less than that, but, that, but it continues today. Now, back to the issue of sort of where we are. Um, whether the economy, Steph mentioned Atlanta GDP now, believe it or not, you know, 5% uh, retail sales today beats expectations. Whether another issue for the market overall is whether it's just too good, whether data is just too good. Why? Because it engages the Fed perhaps more than people want to, to realize that soft landing may be good, no landing, no good. Uh, Steve Leisman joins us now on that note as Neil Kashkari, Steve is on the tape suggesting he's not ready to say that he's uh, done raising rates yet. What, what do you think here? Uh, yeah, Neil Kashkari is saying exactly what you said there, uh, Scott, that he's, uh, you know, still watching the data. Um, still, inflation, he believes, is still too high, so he's not uh, telling us he's ready to cut. He did talk about the idea of potential cuts next year if the uh, inflation rate falls and the Fed would be too tight. Same idea of John Williams. Even the chairman has spoken about this idea that the Fed itself was penciled in cuts for next year. But I think the story today is the resilience of the economy. I mean, this 5%. Atlanta GDP now, I would take it with a grain of salt for two reasons. Sometimes they're, they're on the high side, and they are well above the street, Scott, when it comes to uh, uh, right now in terms of our, our CNBC rapid update is north of two, which just by way of context, we started off this quarter around, uh, or in the prior quarter, people estimated the third quarter was going to be around zero. So we are back above trend 2.1, I guess, would be our estimate on the CNBC rapid update. But not everybody has updated for today with this outsized uh, consumer spending number, Scott, which is doing quite well. And I think what it means is it's going to be tough for the Fed to either stop raising rates or to think about cutting rates in an environment where GDP is running faster than they thought, unemployment is lower than they thought, 
and inflation is above where they want it to be. Sure, but yeah, you could have easily finished that sentence with saying inflation is arguably lower than they thought it might be at, at the current time, too, because it has been, been coming down. The question is, is inflation going to continue to come down at the rate that it already has or if it's going to remain sticky, stickier than people think, and that's going to guide the Fed more than anything else? Yeah, that, that, that's right, Scott. Uh, we've had a couple good months of inflation. Uh, we'll wait to see the end of this month. We get the PCE number, which is the one that the Fed follows and the one the Fed forecasts. For the moment, we're running a percentage point above where they think it ought to be by the end of the year. So there is time to get there. Um, but the inflation, the, the unemployment rate's also running quite a bit below where they, where they wanted it to be. I guess the question you want to ask yourself, Scott, is, <laughs> for lack of a better way to say it, to what extent does the Fed want to be like Wile E. Coyote in one of those cartoons where he steps off off the mesa and there's nothing underneath him. And what you're saying is, is the Fed ready to stop and believe in inflation coming down without the principles underneath it that the economy is slowing? And I'm not sure that's where they're going to be. Uh, they're going to be comfortable being there, um, which is why I think no landing is not OK with the Fed. I do think they want to see some GDP slowing. I do think they want to see some unemployment rate going up before they're saying, hey, you know what, we're done here and we can uh, back off raising rates here. The, the whole problem, though, is in, in the kind of economy we have and with the amount of stimulus that went into the system, juicing the consumer uh, arguably like never before, nobody truly knows how long that strength is going to last in which it's already lasted a lot longer than many people thought it would. Conventional wisdom would have suggested, OK, the Fed's done everything it's done. Consumer has got to slow, right? Inflation's still high. Money's going to be tapped out, et cetera, et cetera. And it, it just hasn't happened yet. Yeah. And, and, and maybe the answer, Scott, is that it's not all from the fiscal side. Maybe there's actual economic activity happening that is positive economic activity uh, that is not necessarily related to all of the stimulus that's around there. You have an awful lot of people employed. You've, they've had higher salaries in the last several months for sure. Real earnings have turned positive, and maybe that's a somewhat unnoticed development. As inflation has fallen, uh, earnings are on, are, are on the positive side of zero when it comes to uh, uh, adjusting for inflation. So that's a positive. Um, and also, by the way, consumer sentiment has been rising. So um, this does not certainly certainly have the, the backing off of recession and now the soft landing. My caution here, Scott, is it's not such so soft anymore. You, I don't think five percent is the right number. You know, two to three percent. That's a big number when we a started off thinking it was going to be zero and b for a Fed that wants the uh, e economy to be running below potential to create slack. It is not a slack creating level of economic growth right now. No, but, you know, at some point, maybe they should just declare victory, some would suggest and say, you know what? You've managed to do all this and keep the economy humming, just like you suggested. And inflation's coming down and it's coming down faster than the Fed thinks. In some respects, it's looking at data that's too backward looking. That's a conversation, mm -hmm. I suppose, that we're going to continue to have. Steve, thank and we'll continue into next week, 10 days. You'll be at Jackson Hole and we'll see uh, whether yeah, eight minutes right. last year turns into <laughs> 10 or more this year. And the, the power of those <laughs> words as well from the from the chair. Steve, thanks, as always. Sure. All right, it's Steve Leesman. Up next, sounding the alarm on the banks. Fitch warning dozens of downgrades could be coming. We'll find out how the committee is navigating all of that. We're back. Two minutes. 
Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. All right, we're back. Financials among the worst performing sector today following a story that broke on CNBC.com. Fitch warning it may be forced to downgrade dozens of U.S. banks if the overall banking environment worsens. Our Hugh Sohn breaking that story. Congrats on that. Um, So, Steph, I turn to you. Bank of America, Morgan Stanley, Charles Schwab. What do you make of this? Yeah, it's not good news, but I think it's worse and much more problematic for the regionals, the smaller banks. At the same time, I think the large banks are taking massive amounts of share from them, and I think that's going to continue. So I think you want to pick your spots within the the banks, within the financials. And I own Bank of America because I don't recall the last time it's traded at point under one times book. It's at 0.9 times book value. And the company actually just grew revenues twice of what expenses were. And that's the story at at, uh, Bank of America, operating leverage. Do you know that they put $10 billion into technology investments over the last decade? So they are seeing the the benefits of that. And they actually had a very decent quarter. So I think uh, on weakness, it's uh, it's a buying opportunity. Morgan Stanley, it's to me all about capital markets, but I do like the wealth management piece. But Capital Markets, the CEO, was on CNBC a couple of weeks ago with Leslie Picker and basically said he thought, based on activity and based on what he was seeing, that Capital Markets bottomed a month prior to when they just reported earnings. So Mm -hmm. I think that is a nice theme. And at 15 times with a 3.7% yield and buying back a ton of stock, I like that one. And Schwab, it's all about cash sorting, slowing, and it is. And also, net interest margins also uh, have bottomed, so says the CEO. And uh, I think the valuation there, I mean, the stock's still down 26% year to date. So I think you have to pick your spots. I would not go, go close to any regional bank at this point. Why don't you own JP Morgan? I'm just curious. It's too expensive. When I can get when I can get these others for when I can get Bank of America under one times book to me, nothing wrong with J.P. Morgan. I just think it's a very consensus long, and I think uh, over time I'll make more money in Bank of America. I mean, Joe, you own it, right? I do. Um, nothing wrong with it at all. It's the by far the best performing big bank stock this year. Was the worst last Up year. Twelve and a half percent. Yeah. Yeah. What um, have you done for me lately? Right. <laughs> I, I bought. I purchased J.P. Morgan in March. I thought at the time that they would be the beneficiary of deposit inflows, and clearly, uh, that's what's happening. Uh, I also own Bank of America. I've struggled with that one now for the better part of the last 18 months. You're just not seeing the type of performance that I thought you would get there. But I think steps on the point here, where the regional banks still remain a no-touch. Uh, let's remember, Moody's downgraded 10 small and mid-sized banks already last week. So this is not unsurprising to the marketplace. I think you want to stay high up in quality when you're looking at these banks, because I think there's going to be a significant amount of consolidation with the regional banks. And there's one bank that if you want to look at from the perspective of being a super regional, which is having a very difficult year, that's USB. That's down 13 percent. I don't own that name. That's the name, though, that I would purchase uh, on a, a deeper decline. 
Josh Brown, JPM's been your your stock of choice. Yeah, and it's outperformed, and there are other banks that are quote unquote cheaper, and they're not as good. And uh, doesn't mean that they can't have look. Every performance conversation, basically, you can change who wins the conversation based on the time frame that you want to use. Over my time frame, J.P. Morgan's a better stock than the other banks. That's why I own that one individually. I would not go anywhere near the regionals. I think they're in trouble. And I want to point out something important about what Fitch is doing. And I actually think they're doing the right thing. First of all, they're 100% owned by Hearst. And the people that were in relatively senior positions in 2007 and 2008, the last time interest rates got to today's levels and did absolutely nothing uh, or aided and abetted uh, some of the excesses of that bubble, they're still there. The the chief executive of Fitch Group is this guy, Paul Taylor. In 07, he was the guy that had the job of looking at everything they did wrong and making sure that the company doesn't repeat it. Now he's the CEO. What do you think they're going to do? They have to look at these companies that have these funding issues that are being forced to pay out more interest than ever just to stay competitive. They must. And so I like that they're doing that. I think if you look at the KRE, it is, yes, 33% off its low from the spring. Okay, great. It's down 6% this past week. It's now 11% below its 200-day moving average, and it's threatening to violate that 50-day moving average, and I think it'll break down uh, through that as well. These stocks are not buys just because they're cheaper than they were two weeks ago. If rates are going to stay higher for longer, and that's what the rally in the 10-year is telling you the market's expectations are, by the way. That's what that's about, the belly of the curve. So if that's the new reality, none of these stocks are buys. None of them. No, we're going to leave it there. Bertha Coombs has the headlines for us. Hi, Bertha. Hi, Scott. The mother of a six-year-old student who shot his first-grade teacher pleaded guilty in a Virginia court today. Deja Taylor was charged with felony child neglect and could serve up to six months in state prison. Prosecutors agreed to drop a separate charge of reckless storage of a firearm. Taylor will be sentenced at the end of October. Hollywood studios reportedly put a new deal on the table for striking writers as that strike stretches past 100 days. Bloomberg News reported the new offer covers concessions related to AI use and access to viewer data, which are the big issues in contention, citing people familiar with the discussions. The Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers agreed to make sure humans are credited as writers of screenplays rather than replacing them with AI. And gas pump prices are inching toward an average of $4 a gallon. AAA reported the highest gas prices since last October. Prices are up $0.02 a gallon over the past week and $0.28 over the past month. Tighter oil supplies from Russia and Saudi Arabia and extreme heat sidelining some U.S. refineries are fueling that climb in oil prices, Scott. And normally they start backing off towards the end of the summer. This year? Not so much. Uh, Bertha, thank you. Bertha Coombs. Up next, betting on the builders. Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway doing just that, unveiling new positions in three housing stocks. We'll tackle that trade and we'll do it next. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, 
drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. We're watching shares of Home Depot giving up uh, all the gains. Beat expectations reaffirmed the muted guidance for the rest of the year, saying it expects sales to decline between 2 and 5%. What's your, what's your read on this? Thought- Third straight same-store sales decline. Yeah, but it's getting better. It's getting less bad, I should say, right? So actually, I was encouraged. We talking about it yesterday. Yeah. Expectations were for negative four comp. They came in a negative two comp. So negative is negative, and that's not great. But last quarter, it was negative 4.5%. So they are definitely making progress. The CEO definitely um, alluded to the fact that perhaps we're seeing a trough, right? The worst is behind them. I thought they did a great job on operating margins. Um, and their guidance is conservative. And I think they should be conservative given the macro and, and, and the unknowns of what higher interest rates are going to, to do. But I was encouraged by their e-commerce growth. I was encouraged by the pro growing more than DIY. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that inventories being down 11% also is pretty encouraging. So to me, I think, you know, it's not perfect. <laughs> Maybe it's just less bad. Uh, but I think from here, I, I, I can see a steady state where they get back to earnings, you know, back to the you know, $4 or $5 level in, uh, in the coming uh, quarters. Less bad, good enough for you to hold it. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I might buy more. Okay, you let us know we do. Uh, so, Josh, Ooh. we can we can attack um, this Berkshire betting on on the builders a couple of ways. I mean, you own Berkshire, so I want your take on on that in and of itself. But also the bet on on the builders, as you know, housing has rebounded. These stocks have done you know sub, sub, substantially uh, better than I think people thought they would. Year to date, Horton's up thirty nine and a half percent. NVR is up 33, Lennar up 36. So you get my point. So comment on both of those, the bets in housing, but also Berkshire. Uh, these positions that Berkshire is taking in the home builders are tiny. So maybe they're a prelude to larger positions, but I don't view them as particularly uh, meaningful by Berkshire standards. Uh, these stocks are working for a very simple reason. There is a multi-year tailwind for the builders. There are not enough homes. There weren't enough homes before the pandemic, and the pandemic just exacerbated a situation that had already existed. We, are, we have, in the last 15 years since the, the housing crisis, we have so substantially underbuilt relative to the amount of 29, 30, 31, and 32-year-olds that we have in this country. And look, existing home sales are not really recovering. We have a lot of homeowners uh, frozen where they are because of the dynamics of what their, their mortgage is locked in at, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Not worth repeating that whole thing. The new home market, though, is back to being on fire. And so people that are going to bite the bullet and take out the mortgage, what do they want for their trouble? They want a new home. So that trend is going to remain in place. I want to go back to what Stephanie said about Home Depot. I believe I, I agree with her. The thing about Home Depot is that it's not as cyclical as people used to think it is. The dynamic is very simple. When you have 
uh, an economy that's faltering, people tend to stay in their house and rather than spend money on travel and all this other stuff, they, they tend to do what's called uh, nesting or we called it cocooning back in the day. But that's like just focused on renovating their existing home. That's the counter cyclical part of Home Depot and it works out for them really well. When the economy's on fire, people are doing big renovation projects and or buying new homes. Then the contractor trade that Home Depot plays in uh, is, is the strongest part of their business. But I think it's a very defensible business, almost no matter what the economy does. And I agree with her. I actually think the stock is a buy here. Yeah. Joe, you've got DR Horton and Lenar in the T. Yeah, I, I do. And just then, you know, I said to you yesterday, I think Home Depot is reestablishing the momentum. It looks very interesting. I agree with everything that Stephanie and Josh just said. And one other point I'll add, there's nothing there to lead someone to believe that these consumer facing businesses are losing pricing power. And that's been the narrative that they're going to lose the pricing power. They're not losing the pricing power on the home builders. Look, uh, in October, uh, the, the strategy went into D.R. Horton. Quite candidly, if the strategy was not systematic, if it was not uh, non-discretionary, the rules-based nature of it led us into owning the home builders because logically at the time you would have looked at it and intuitively said, no, you know, not the right place to be moving forward, but it's been the exact right place to be. And to Josh's point, New home builders have the advantage. No one wants to walk into a house right now that has shared, uh, shared carpet and purple walls and mirrors and buy some old home that they have to renovate and trade in their 4% mortgage for a 7% mortgage. So that's the distinctive advantage that they have. They're in the sweet spot. They're reasonably valued. That's not going to change anytime soon. That was rather specific. You've been in a spot like that lately or something? <laughs> There's a few of those homes in Nassau County. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're not making very much friends out there now. That's Joe Terranova. <laughs> he said it. His opinions are his and his only. Coming up, our call of the day. One firm downgrading a bunch of oil refiners. We have ownership in that space, which means we debate it next. To show you refiner stocks today. There they are on your screen. They're down uh, almost across the board. Bank of America today downgrades the space. Uh, continue to believe that the mid-cycle earnings power of the U.S. refining sector has been reset, they say. Risks that margins are peaking. Joe, I, I turn to you because of, of, I think, all the people on this program, you mm -hmm. have the most exposure in this space. Valero, personally, and in the T. 66 in the T. Marathon in the T. Oil and, gas, oil and gas at 8.7% from an industry allocation uh, in the JOT strategy. That's the second highest overweight energy at 11%. Um, I, so I read the note. I was talking to uh, a former energy trader that I used to work with uh, decades ago, and we both said the same thing. This is, this is just a classic example of here comes a hurricane, because you always remember when there's a hurricane, the disruption to the refined products. Um, but, you know, fundamentally, I read through the note. I don't disagree with it. You're looking at stocks that have had, in the case of Marathon and Phillips, a very strong performance here from the end of May through the early part of August. I understand that they could take, quote, unquote, a strategic pause. And I think further risk to the refiners 
is the continuation of an uptrend for the spot price of oil, because obviously crude oil itself is the needed element in that refined product. So, I, listen, I, I oh, don't... Right, the spread. Right. They don't get as much from the spread. So the right? margin... You're paying more for crude or for what you're selling it for as, as a refined product. Right, so the margins begin to contract. So, you know, the, this is a well-written, a very thoughtful note. I, as I said, I don't disagree with it. Momentum would suggest otherwise. That's why we're there in an overweight allocation. And then in the back of your mind, you think about the potential for a hurricane season. That'll have the most impact on the refined products. So if you're in these names, I wouldn't move so quickly out of them just yet. Maybe in the coming weeks, you can scale out of them. All right. Uh, Steph. Yeah. We wouldn't own the refiners. <laughs> I just, That's a quote I, I have in my notes from you today. I've never made money in them. They're kind of, to me, more trading vehicles. Uh, yeah, they are, you know, certainly... Uh, they could be impacted from severe weather and downturns, and that's hard to predict. And, and so I just think there's other values in energy, right? I mean, Chevron, I've owned forever. I get a 3.8% dividend yield. It's down a lot this year. Hasn't done well, but I like the diversification. By the way, I do get a little bit of refining exposure in Chevron. Slumberger is that hidden technology company with expanding margins. And Diamondback Energy, they just continue to execute really well. And they had a really great quarter, um, and they're buying back stock, and they're offering special dividends and that sort of thing. So I just think there's other places within energy, but I'm overweight as well. Right. We will take a quick break. And when we come back, Mike Santoli joins us for his midday word. We're back in just two minutes. Dow's down 325. We're back. Uh, senior markets commentator Mike Santoli is here for his midday word. Uh, if you're worried about China, it's no surprise that energy and materials would be down. Yeah. Uh, today, energy is the worst performer, and materials is not that far behind it. No, they're not. So that's sort of the overlay. Also, banks very weak, down two and a half. Well, because of the Fitch so. story. Likely the Fitch story. I've been, you know, a little bit of wear and tear on that group as well. It's another day, though, where it's sort of, you know, pretty weak under the surface. Uh, if you just look at market breadth figures, um, you know, you basically figure we kind of touched last week's low in the S and P 500 this morning which was also, I keep pointing out, the low of, uh, or the high, rather, from July 11th. So right before everybody decided soft landing is here, that was the level we were at. We're also making some progress in terms of chopping sideways and working off whatever thing, whatever was overbought, uh, because we are also at a level we were at two months ago. So I think that you can say you can get really lucky and have no more net damage uh, on the index level if we just were to stop here and, uh, and gather up some strength. I think that's a lot to ask. I continue to, to sort of say that. Bond volatility in general is not that friendly for the equity markets. And what you've seen today is a lot of volatility. In fact, you've looked at the way retail traded, the way bonds traded. Mm -hmm. You would have think it was a weak retail sales number because the interpretation was, I guess we're getting spent out in July, you know, and, 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 or, and or the Fed has to do more. Well, we'll find out if they yeah. if they have to do more. I mean, Kashkari's, you know, saying he's not ready to sure. throw in the towel and Powell's speaking next week and rates hit their highest level today since October. So I, it's a yeah. big story. No, it absolutely is the, the big story. I still think it's like how negative do you want to get because the economy is still strong? You know, I mean, I think there's a little bit of a push pull in that because if the Fed, even if they're going to do more, it's going to be in small spaced out increments. It's not as if they're really going to target, you know, some radically higher unemployment rate. But you know, we'll see what the market can handle. So it's like the Leesman story earlier. It's like yeah. soft landing, good, no landing, no good. That's right. <laughs> I mean, I think that's the interpretation. If you really feel like the, the, the Fed is going to soon get emboldened to really, you know, run headlong at the economy to try to weaken. Yeah. It. All right. I'll see you in a bit. Uh, closing bell. It's Mike Santoli coming up. Send us your trades. The committee is going to grade them next.
All right, grade my trade. Steph, you're up first. Jonathan from Texas bought 200 shares of IBM, $143.75. I anticipate growth and strength in their AI business. Can I make 10% or more on this trade? Well, I mean, last year you would have made 10% or more (laughs) because it was one of the best performing tech stocks in the whole market. Yes. This year, not so much. No, because it falls in the value camp, right? And value is actually underperformed growth, as we all know, we've been talking about. So I do like this story for the long term. I think it's kind of a steady eddy story, if you will, not a lot of beta. I like that they've changed their business mix to software and services being 75% of total revenues. That's recurring, so you you have that. Um, I like the Red Hat acquisition and, and its integration is going very well and the Aptio uh, M&A that they just did as well. So I, I think it's very important that they do the free cash flow number and I think they will. They reiterated that at the last quarter and I think add it all up. It's a very cheap stock with a 4.7% yield. So I uh, like it. All right, Joey. Uh, Mercado Libre bought, uh, bought it at 825. Do I sell for the profit and then wait for a dip? I was looking for the it's just a Twitter user. There's no name on it. Uh, do I, uh, do I sell it for the profit and then wait for a dip to rebuy or just add to my position? You own it in the T. Yeah, well, for the Twitter user that bought it at A25, that's an A-plus considering it's 1291 right now. Uh, the inference in the question suggests that there's a little bit of sentiment towards should I ring the register? And if, in fact, that's the case, there's always the ability to sell covered calls in the option market to take some of the risk off the table. All right. We are going to take a quick break. We'll come back and we'll do final trades next. Three o'clock Eastern closing bell. Hope you'll join me. Adam Parker will be with us. Stacy Raskin on this breakout bounce back, really, from NVIDIA. And Chris Toomey, Morgan Stanley Private Wealth. So don't want to miss all that. Three o'clock Eastern time. Josh Brown, your final trade. You go first. What do we got? I'm, I'm doing an avoid today. I think PayPal is a huge value trap. There are a lot of people that come on our show that talk about this as being cheap. I think Apple and Google Pay options are just absolutely draining their moat. I w- it's at a six-year low today. I still wouldn't buy it. Even Elliot, the activist, threw in the towel, we found out last night. So I would make PayPal an unavoid for me right now. Yeah, they finally got a new CEO, but you're right. Um, the Elliot news was significant. Stock's down 4% uh, as we speak. Thank you for that. Joe T. I still think the consumer has pricing power and... The fact that they have the pricing power means they're going to be out spending on experiences. That takes you to Marriott. It's a name that we recently added to the Joe T strategy. It was recently downgraded. I disagree with the downgrade. All right. Stephanie Link. And we talked about Fortinet yesterday, and I am a buyer of the stock. Uh, I think this is a great long-term story. $280 billion total addressable market by 2026. That's a CAGR of 16%. Uh, they have total revenue growth of 18 to 20%. Their margins are expanding by about 100 basis points. And the free cash flow growth is 20%. So I like that story a lot. All right. Good stuff. Uh, we'll keep our eye on the market, too. Uh, Dow's been down. Well, right now we're down more than 300. See where we finish, or at least what that last, last hour has in store. I'll see you on Closing Bell. The exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. 
All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report Disclaimer. Jake from State Farm here, hanging out with Mel's Mow and Grow. Mel chose State Farm for small business insurance because his local agent is a small business owner too. So she knew how to help him personalize his policies. And now he's rolling in the green. Like a... Like a good neighbor... Guys, I'm trying to do the line. Oh, sorry, Jake. It's all good. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to an agent today.